Ooh, yeah, doing the thing, yeah, this is the macho man Randy Savage, and I sleep with one eye open, yeah, living on the edge of a lightning bolt, because I listen to the higher side chats with Greg Carlwood. Yes, I do, and I want everybody out there to subscribe to the higher side chats on iTunes, yeah, doing the thing, yeah, Ooh, yeah. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. But we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. How's it going, party people? Wow, I cannot believe that Randy Macho Man Savage is a THC listener. I mean, I know we do have a mutual friend in Comedy God, or nay, Comedy Titan, Bob Hansen. And I guess I can only assume that Bob told the Macho Man, and here we are. So, uh, you know, what a great guy. Be sure to see Bob perform if you're in New York City. He is the man, and I'm also going to put his links in with this episode. But welcome to THC from sunny San Diego. I am Greg Carlwood, and I'm drinking a little drink, smoking a little smoke, and getting in that slightly left-from-center headspace that allows the mind to open up and some of the system's nasty footprints to melt away. At least that's how I see it. And this is going to be a fun one. I think both the free and the plus show end up being a little longer today, which seems to be the typical MO with today's guest, and in a good way. I have to admit, I am a little late to the table here because I have heard today's guest, Randall Carlson, on pretty much every show that isn't mine, and it's always awesome. Uh, He put out an excellent episode of The Joe Rogan Experience, uh, a couple of shows I've been lucky enough to be a guest on, both Midwest Reel and Gramerica, and it seems like on all these shows, they talked about it going long, but it only makes sense because Randall is such a wealth of information and interesting knowledge, and I try to take this one into some places where I haven't really heard Randall go, and I think it turned out to be pretty awesome. Although at times it did sound like Randall was sitting in the middle of Hell's Kitchen with all the clanging around going on in the background, but it's not too bad. And he is working with a team of people, and if you check out their website, it does really show that they are working hard on their presentation, which is really important these days. You're only going to go so far if you've still got that lime green text on the starry background on that website you haven't updated since 95. But anyway, let's dive into it. I'm going to play the THC holiday ad and hopefully get some new signups for the extended show. And then we're talking sacred geometry, lost history, astrology, earth cycles, catastrophism, and the ancients with the man himself, Randall Carlson, on the other side. My, my, good people of the internet, it looks like Christmas is finally here. And I got some of my guests here to help me help you spread a little holiday love. Good luck. <laughs> oh, well, I know here at the Higher Side Jets, we couldn't be more giddy about it. And why not celebrate the corporate-driven season of spending with a gift that oh-so-ironically spits right in the face of the Christmas machine with the sweet, sweet softness of a t-shirt for the rebellious fashionista in your life from my little clothing brand over at Conspiracies.net. This is one of the most degrading things that anyone could possibly do. Uh, thanks, Freeman. Or better yet, give them the gift that gives all year long with the subscription to THC Plus for one of your oh-so-precious friends and family. I know that's what Jim Mars is doing, right, man? Well, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence myself. <laughs> Guys, this is not constructive. Duncan Trussell, help me out here. If I were Satan, 
the first idea I'd want to implant into their heads is... Okay, that's not what I had in mind either, but if you know someone who enjoys THC, just go to the HiresideChatsPlus.com with any credit or debit card and put in the email address and information for that special someone in your life rather than yourself. I know I and all the great guests on THC would really appreciate it. We don't want to kill anybody or hurt anybody. We want to make a system that works. Jacques, I think that approach is actually illegal. Let's not do that. It was a great idea, but it doesn't go far enough. No, man, it went too far. But guys, all I'm saying is a year or six months of THC Plus makes a great gift. Believe me, I just signed Douglas Dietrich up for a year, and he couldn't be happier. <laughs> okay. I love you dearly. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, honestly, uh, you flatter me too much. If you were a member of the opposite sex, I would propose. See what I tell you. <laughs> Merry Christmas, people. <laughs> uh. All right, folks. While our mainstream culture is largely content with its ignorance, many of us recognize the value of sacred geometry, gematria, numerology, the secular nature of time, and many other principles of our universe that ancient mystery schools, Pythagorean brotherhoods, and Masonic lodges have worked to preserve for as long as our limited knowledge of human history will allow. And we know to really unlock the mystery of these sacred codes can take a lifetime of study and dedication that many of us lack the discipline for. But luckily, today we're going to be talking with one of the more dedicated and admirable men of our time by the name of Randall Carlson. Randall is a master builder and architectural designer, teacher, geometrician, geomythologist, geological explorer, and renegade scholar. He has had four decades of study, research, and exploration of that oh-so-interesting crossroads between ancient mysteries and modern science. He's been a mason for over 35 years and has probably done more before his morning coffee than I've done all week. Randall, my man, welcome to THC. Well, thanks for having me, Greg. <laughs> yeah, man, this is a real pleasure. I know there's so much to talk about, so many different paths we could take, but uh, I think the best place to start is with sacred geometry because it really is one of the core components that sort of bleeds into all the other areas, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely, I would say that. <clears throat> I would say ge sacred geometry is kind of a unifying system that ties a lot of disparate elements into a cohesive whole. Right on. So I read up that on your site, above Plato's door to his Academy of Metaphysics, he has an inscription that says, let no one enter this portal who is ignorant of geometry. Why is it so fundamental to developing reason and a good thought process? Mm. Well, I look, I look at reason, you know, in... in magical systems throughout the ages, reason was always represented, uh, or the power of the intellect was always represented by the sword, you know, whereas the emotions was represented by the cup, the physical body, uh, by the pantacle, and so on. But the idea, I think, is that the image of the sword representing reason or the uh, the powers of the intellect is, is to convey the idea that um, you can use that sword to, uh, to, to basically blaze a trail through the jungles of metaphysics. And I think that what Plato was trying to say was that if you decide to follow that path, you need to have the sword of reason at your side because otherwise you're going to get lost in the jungle. And, and I, think it's, I think I've seen a lot of that myself in the last number of decades, people wandering down these paths who knows what they're getting into, but there's a lot of deception out there. There's a lot of um, misinformation, disinformation, um, charlatans. And if, as long as you use that power of reason, you can usually cut through that and, and get to the truth. It, I, I see that the power of reason and the, 
developing the mind is, is very critical if you're on the quest for the truth. So I think Plato's idea was that, you know, Plato's considered the greatest metaphysician of the Western world. And the fact that he did put this emphasis on the cultivation of the powers of intellect and the powers of reason, I think was because he felt that, you know, when you decide you're going to, to, to trod that path, you need to, to have some way of, of clearing the debris in the underbrush. I think that's what it's about. It's, it's about developing discernment about developing discrimination between the true and the false, and basically developing and cultivating the ability to not be misled. Yeah, the, well, the thing with something like sacred geometry is it's it's right there in your face. You can't really twist it one way or another. It doesn't really have a political affiliation. It doesn't really have an agenda. It's just mm. basic truth in a nutshell, I guess. Was it? Would you agree with that? Yeah, it is what it is, and, and it's universal. So the principles of geometry are going to be the same no matter what your religious background, your whether your beliefs, you know, whether you're a, a devout believer or an atheist, you know, whether your political uh, orientation is. It, none of that matters because the relationship, say, for example, between the side of a square and its diagonal is always going to remain constant regardless of all of these other factors. So... Geometry is sort of a system of constancy upon which we can we can basically develop a whole diversity of different ideas. But, you know, in geometry, you start with the simplest and most obvious truths. I mean, these are the axioms of geometry, things that, you know, when you say, for example, that two things equal to the same third thing are equal to each other. That's pretty hard to dispute. Mm -hmm. OK, and, and this is what geometry begins with, with axioms. You establish things that we all basically agree on by virtue of the fact that we're existing in this world. And once we establish this foundation of these axioms, we can now begin to build upon that. Mm -hmm. But no matter how high you go with it or how deep you go with it, the point is that you can always retrace your steps back to these fundamental principles. And that's very important because if you find yourself disoriented and not knowing which direction to turn, you can always retrace your path from where you came from. And, and that's the power of, of mathematics. That's the power of geometry. And I think it's once we established this methodology of, of thinking and approaching reality as, as exemplified by geometry, this is what opened up the whole door to the scientific edifice that has completely altered the world that we live in for the last few centuries. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there are no moral implications to science as it's as it's practiced today, uh, which which is a distinction from the way knowledge was propagated in ancient times, because there was more, most definitely, a, a moral underpinning to knowledge and how that knowledge is applied. But the thing about geometry is, again, is that it provides a way for all of us, no matter how diverse our points of view, to find some common ground. Right. You know, there that these relationships are so fundamental to everything. And what we see in sacred geometry is, as say unique from modern textbook geometry, is the fact that there is this philosophical dimension to it. Um, that these forms and these patterns actually have meanings beyond the simple relationships that can be expressed mathematically. <clears throat> and so, 
you know, you have a circle and you have a square. And these are actually become symbolical. The circle becomes a symbol of the um, the immeasurable as contrasted with the square, which represents forces and forms that are rationally measurable. Because as we all know, the relationship between the diameter of a circle and its circumference is an irrational number that cannot be expressed uh, by a non-repeating, non-terminating, that can be expressed by a, a, a decimal that has a, a finite value. Right. On the other hand, a square, uh, the relationship between, say, the side of a square and its perimeter is eminently rational. It's simply four to one. However, the irrational gets introduced as soon as we draw in the diagonal to the square. And now we have this relationship that cannot be expressed by a whole number. We can express it. When we say an irrational number, we're talking about a a number that's, say, expressed as a fraction, where either the numerator or the denominator can be expressed as a whole number. But then the other factor is a non-repeating, non-terminating decimal. And so you cannot have a rational relationship between the circumference of a circle and its diameter, between the side of a square and its diagonal. The interesting thing, though, is, is and this is one of the things that the, that the ancient people understood, was that when you go from a, a linear dimension in length, these numbers are irreconcilable. The diagonal of a square to its side is, is irreconcilable. However, as soon as we expand a dimension and we go from a single dimension to two dimensions, now... The, the, the areas become perfectly reconcilable because if you take an area drawn on the side of a square, let's say of one, its area is one. If you take the area of a square drawn on its diagonal, it's the square root of two times the square root of two, which of course is two. And so now when we express in terms of area, it's perfectly reconcilable. And the Egyptians utilize this principle as the basis for their system of measurement or metrology in that they had a unit of measurement um, that was called a reman. They had another unit of measurement that's called a royal cubit. And they had this relationship to each other that was the same as the diagonal of a square to its side. So the royal cubit was about 1.72 feet in round numbers. The reman was about 1.2165. And they had this relationship of each other, of the square root of two to one. So they were irreconcilable in terms of measuring length, but when you got into measuring areas, then they were perfectly reconcilable. So that a square royal cubit was exactly double the area of the square reman. And this was the basis of the Egyptian system of measurement. And we find that that those units are also fundamental to what I basically think of as a universal system of metrology or measurement that can be found um, throughout the ancient world, widely spread geographically, that links together um, many of these ancient units of measurement that were used primarily in a sacred context, primarily to build the the sacred temples and the edifices of of worship and so on. And these units of measurement from, from megalithic Britain, to Greece, to Rome, even to the New World, some of the measurements that are, have been uh, derived from studies of, of for example, the, um, the, the pyramids of the sun and the moon at Teotihuacan, are showing that they're all linked by a common system of geometry. And this is one of the things in our uh, 
sacred geometry classes that I've developed quite in depth so that once we've established these principles of geometry and people begin to see these relations, then I show how the uh, the units of ancient measurement were consistent with these exact same ratios, which suggests something very interesting that perhaps there was a universal system of measurement at, u- used in the ancient world. Yeah, and that's a fascinating idea. I really love that because we're taught that everybody was isolated and to think that there might have been something, some type of global communication or travel or principles of measurement. I mean, that's super interesting. And when we see these structures built with these principles and these ratios embedded in them, was this sort of just a veneration for sacred geometry or is there a a deeper purpose, like some type of energetic purpose that some people talk about? Oh, I think that there is an energetic purpose. And and I could attempt an explanation of that. But when I get into showing them like the ratios of the in the um, electromagnetic spectrum, they show up, for example, in the visible wavelengths, we find um, the root two relationship, the root three relationship uh, in the wavelengths, the, the vibratory wavelengths of the different color frequencies they, they're found, for example. Um, mm-hmm. And they're, you know, certainly found within nature. Uh, we see, you know, in the spacing of the planets, the, um, the, the masses of the planets, we see it on the molecular level. Um, in fact, I've got several articles posted on the website that gets into some of that uh, atomic and molecular ge- geometry and how these forms and patterns show up there, for example, in the DNA molecule. And it's, again, it be difficult to try to describe verbally because it's a very visual thing. Right. But if anybody goes, <clears throat> any of the listeners want to go to the Sacred Geometry website, there are, I think, three articles introducing some of the concepts of sacred geometry where we I, I get into great detail on this and also have the graphics and the images to help people understand what they're reading. Yeah, that's just a, a fascinating angle to it. And I do love the application of the philosophical aspects because it makes it seem like it's a science, religion, way of life all in one. Because like you said, you see it in nature. We see these relationships come out, these codes come out in music and frequency. And it really does seem like it's embedded in every aspect, not just geometry, but these relationships are encoded into so many different aspects that make up reality as a whole. Absolutely. And, and I think the ancient people did understand this, and they were a lot more sophisticated about this kind of information than they've been given credit for. And, and it does, you know, that's the whole thing that I think, you know, why we call it sacred geometry is because it is so universally pervasive. And, and it links together so much disparate phenomena, whether it's, again, on the, you know, the molecular level, the galactic level, the human level. You know, the human body is a repository of sacred geometry, primarily based upon derivations of the um, square root of five, interestingly. And so, uh, yes, it's, it's, it's found in nature, it's found in art, it's found in architecture, it's found in music. And I think this is why we consider that it's sacred, because it seems so integral to all levels of creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the pre-show, we were talking a little bit about incorporating sacred geometry into modern housing, and that sounds really interesting, because if these principles are so fundamental and generally, I guess, there's a, there's a positivity associated with them, uh, bringing them into modern housing would be 
pretty cool. Uh, how would that work exactly? What do you what do you think the benefits would be? The benefits would probably be simply on a something that would work on a subconscious level because you know the idea was that the environment should be a reflection of these harmonic patterns and and right now you know there is no consideration for the how the built environment or the designed environment relates to anything outside of itself and what we find consistent in the the uh, ancient world is that the builders of the the cities the builders of the temples what they were all about was this integration of the microcosm and the macrocosm using the temple as a geometric mean between the human world and a higher uh, cosmic domain. And so the idea is that the, that the patterns and forms and relationships found, for example, in the astronomical realm, in the cosmic realm, would be translated into the dimensions of the temple. And coming from that direction, coming from the other direction, the human proportions expanded outwards um, would then also be found embodied into the uh, proportions of the temple. So the idea, again, is that the temple served as this geometric mean between two orders of reality, the human scale and the cosmic scale. And so we find embedded in these relationships, whether it's the Great Pyramid or Stonehenge, to cite the, the more well-known ones, is that there are these forms that exist, shall I say, independent of the structure itself. The, the, the basis, for example, of the Great Pyramid on Giza uh, is the dimensions of the planet, the whole planet itself, on a scaling ratio of 43,200 to 1. And um, I, I look at that and I go, this is not coincidental. This is something that was an intentional part of the, of the, the uh, motive of the designers, was to encapsulate this relationship between the axial length of the Earth and its circumference length. And that's embodied to a great high degree of accuracy in the proportions of the, the Great Pyramid with its 51.85 degree slope to base angle. And again... Um, this is something it's difficult to show without some graphics. Mm -hmm. But um, again, if you just try to put it in simple form, if you take the square base of the pyramid and you were to measure very accurately its perimeter, which is roughly going to be about 756 feet per side. Mm -hmm. Okay, you were to take that, that measurement and turn it into a circle. In other words, circling the square we then take that circle, enlarge it by precisely 43,200. What we then find is we have, to a high, high degree of accuracy, the circumference of the Earth at the equator. In turn, if we take the, the, um, the theoretical height of the pyramid, as it would have been if you project that slope to base 51.85 degree, 51 degree angle to its apex, not the... the, the present height of the pyramid, which is truncated, but the theoretical height, we take that and, and expand that, that height, which is roughly 482 feet by uh, 43,200, what we then have is the polar radius of the Earth, again, to a very high degree of accuracy. Now, one could say, well, this is just arbitrary. You pick this number 43,200. Well, not really, because that number 43,200 was integral to the to the canons of ancient numerical cosmology that seem to pervade the entire ancient world. We find that number embedded 
in the in the Vedic tradition, uh, for example, in the, the it's the base unit for the measurement of the yuga cycles. We find it the base unit for the measurement of the Sumerian king cycles from the Babylonian cuneiform texts and from writings of Herodotus and others. This number, or or one of its decimal expansions, like four thirty two. Uh, 4,320, 43,200, 432,000. And uh, isn't, isn't 432 hertz also an important number? Yes. Yes, it is. It's like the frequency of the harder. It used to be what we tuned music to until it was changed after World War II. They changed it to 440. Yeah, I think it's called the, I think it's called the Phrygian mode. Yes, and it was uh, 432 cycles per second rather than 440. And um, yes, that's absolutely correct. We find the numbers, um, you know, again, so many diverse places that, yeah, let's see. Well, the radius of the sun, for example, measured in miles is 432,000 miles. Right. And one could say, well, that's just arbitrary because you're using miles. But then I like to point out that, well, the modern mile that we use is actually a, uh, had its origin in an ancient system of sacred metrology that was again derived from the the human proportion because you know that a mile is um, based on the length of 1,000 human paces and so if we go back to the origin of our of the mile that we use in America today which is 5,280 feet we would find that it would be uh, a thousand paces where each pace would be 5.28 feet and this actually goes back to ancient Britain and was uh, a unit of measurement that was used in the building of Stonehenge because the radius, if you take the outer face of Stonehenge, the Sarsen Stone Circle, its radius was about, right at 52.8 feet. So that suggests very strongly that, that they were using some variation on our what we cons- think of as our modern mile, but actually has very ancient roots. Yeah, that's fascinating, man. And it gets me thinking about the nature of measurements themselves. And I tend to get pretty conspiratorial minded when it comes to really anything. But systems that come from the top down or powerful people using their experts and institutions for creating new standards that take us further away from enlightenment or understanding, kind of like the change in the musical standard. But what about the metric system versus the American system? Is there any interesting history or subtext as to why we haven't converted here or why we've kept our own standard? Well, you know, the metric system was initially uh, geodetically based. It was the um, taken as, what was it, one... 100,000th part of the distance from the equator to the North Pole. So it was a, it was a unit of measurement derived from uh, taking a section of the great arc, you know, which would be one quarter of the circumference, the uh, polar circumference of the Earth. So it was originally derived from, um, from the Earth itself. Um, you know, I don't know the history of... The um, that system probably as much as I should. I, I know that it takes us like one step, I think, further away from the ancient system. But interestingly, there's there, there's a relationship between the kilometer and the, the modern mile, which is very, very close to the golden section. So the mile is to the kilometer almost in the golden ratio, which I find to be rather interesting. And it makes it it makes it interesting to, to do a conversion back and forth between the two. 
And um, so, for example, if you want to convert, um, a simple little trick for converting from kilometers to miles is that, um, you know, the number of miles is going to be less. So let's say you've got very round numbers. Let's say you're talking about 100 kilometers. In terms of miles, divide that number by 10, which would then be 10, multiply the, that result by 6, and you'll have basically converted it into miles. So take any, any number, say for example, 80 kilometers, you want to convert that to miles, divide it by 10, which is, which is going to be 8, and then multiply that by 6, which will be 48. And now you've made the conversion between kilometers and miles. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And that stems, stems from the fact that you've got this 1.6 relationship, which is very, very close to the uh, golden section of 1.618. Man, it is just so crazy that we see these same relationships pop up over and over again in places that you wouldn't think that we'd see them. You wouldn't think, right. But you mentioned the human body earlier, and that's a great one. There's so many examples there. Can you tell us a little bit about how these universal measurements show up in these meat bodies of ours? Absolutely. <clears throat> yes. The golden section is very ubiquitous in all kinds of phenomena, but it really shows up in the human body. And any virtually anybody can see the golden section simply by holding your forearm out in front of your face and looking at the distance from elbow to fingertip, which anciently was the derivation of the cubit, which comes from the Latin cubitus, which means elbow. Um, so anyways, if you look at the distance from elbow to fingertip, like right now, Greg, hold your forearm out in front of your face, okay. and then take your finger or your thumb, feel around on your wrist until you find a little space, a little hole in your wrist joint. It's called a space of desktop. Feel around and you'll feel that there's a little gap, actually, in your wrist joint. Uh-huh, yeah. Okay, now take that distance from elbow to fingertip, that hole divides that length, your cubit, in the golden section. So now go from fingertip to the space of desktop, and from the space of desktop to your elbow, that's the relationship. Fingertip to space of desktop is to the space of desktop to your um, elbow in the golden section relationship. That's awesome. And then you're... Yeah, so <clears throat> all of the properties, math, unique mathematical properties that apply to the golden section are found throughout the human body. If you take the full height of a human, of a person, from floor to the top of the head, and divide it by the golden section, you'll get the height of the navel. Hmm. So when a human baby is born, their navel divides the body into two equal parts. It basically falls in the middle of the length of the body. As you grow, basically what you're doing is you're growing into the golden proportion relationships. So that by the time you, because you can imagine now, if you saw a fully grown, say, five foot ten individual who had the proportions of an infant, they would look quite strange, wouldn't they? <laughs> yes. Their, their, their head would be somewhat too large for their body. <laughs> right. Their legs would be too short. But what happens is as you grow, you grow into the golden proportion. So it's almost as if, you know, when you're born, you're not fully formed geometrically yet. Wow. And interestingly, there's a curve called a, a, a golden spiral that um, can be drawn and developed from a, uh, from a uh, uh, golden rectangle. 
the, the growth of the fetus in the womb conforms to that golden spiral. So right there at the very beginning, the cellular growth of the fetus in the womb is following this geometric curve that's derived from the golden section. And then we come, we're born, we're not fully formed geometrically yet, and so we spend the next roughly 18 years um, growing into the golden proportions. And of course, we all deviate some, um, somewhat. Um, but what happens is, you know, you may find... I've never met you personally. You know, your legs might be a little too short. They might be a little, <laughs> little too long. I don't know. Um, yeah, well, I am far from perfect. I'll say that. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, well. <laughs> okay, so in any case, though, <clears throat> what happens is if you start accurately measuring a lot of people, and this is one of the fun things we do in my sacred geometry classes, is you may measure somebody and, you know, you're, let's say we take your, your navel height from the floor. Well, it might be a little high, might be a little low. Um, like mine's a little high because I was always kind of long-legged. But hmm. if you look at, at, you know, there are variations, for example, gender variations. Um, men tend to deviate, like women, for example, their navel will be a little bit higher. So that means that, that they're actually on the low side of the golden section. Men will be a little bit on the other side. Uh, there's also variations by, by race. There's variations by geogra place of geographic origin. But what happens is if you start um, you know, it, uh, measuring averaging it, all averaging it all out, you get closer and closer to the, the, the exact um, proportion of and, and again, the, the golden section is one of these irrational numbers that cannot be expressed. Uh, by a, by a fraction with with uh, without having any, uh, a non-repeating, non-terminating decimal in, in either the numerator or the denominator, but we usually round it off to about one point six one eight. It actually one of the it just keeps going one point six one eight zero three three nine eight nine et cetera et cetera. And it keeps going, but that zero in the ten thousandths position is usually a good place to to round it off for practical purposes. Yeah. And, and really, you can call it 1.62 is very close as well. As I said, that's the relationship between the mile and the kilometers, right at 1.62. Yeah, I, I love those connections. They're just mind-blowing. And this is sort of a weird question. I just kind of got thinking about it. But the New Age community has kind of run wild with the idea that certain crystals put off certain energies and can even be healing. And I'm skeptical of a lot of that stuff. But at the same time, Crystals are weird in that they're like, kind of like living rocks, and they do grow in these geometrical fractal patterns. Uh, what are your thoughts on crystals? Is there any real significance? I tend to think that there probably is, and having not really immersed myself in a study of it, I, I usually like to refrain from giving an authoritative opinion on something that I haven't studied myself. Yeah. Um, my, my, my sense is that there's probably something to it, um, that that you know forms do emanate energy. All forms. There's relationship between form and energy. That's indisputable. Mm -hmm. And but again, having not immersed myself in the specific applications, I'd rather not try to speculate. Other than to say that we know that crystal formation and crystal growth follows the laws of geometry. Quartz mm -hmm. crystals are hexagonal, for example. Um, and based on hexagonal geometry. So, um, you know, the angular relationships between the face crystal faces is probably the result of the uh, intersecting patterns of energies and force. 
Beyond that, I I would hesitate to speculate too much, but if we do this again, perhaps I can do a little bit of um, research into that. Because you know, Greg, there is so much to learn. Um, yes. That, you know, I'm always getting, I like to believe that I know almost everything, <laughs> but I constantly get asked questions that I don't know the answer to. And I've decided I'm going to need several more lifetimes of research to get to the bottom of all of this. <laughs> I hear you, man. It never really ends, which is a good thing. But let's switch gears a bit then. When it comes to the things that the ancients valued, clearly there's a huge emphasis on sacred geometry, but they also put a lot of value in astrology. And there's different schools of thought as to why, but do you see this emphasis as strictly allegorical or mythological, or do you think there's something deeper there too? Oh, I definitely think there's more to that. that now, that's a question I think I probably could uh, respond to. Um, <clears throat> you say astrological, you know, in the ancient times, there was no differentiation between astrology and astronomy like there is now. And, <clears throat> and it's, it's interesting, I think the paradigm is shifting so that we're beginning to see that there actually is a, a rational basis to ancient astrology. And of course, I think it's been watered down um, you know, into this kind of newspaper astrology or tabloid astrology, which I don't put a lot of credence in. But when you start looking at um, the larger scale patterns of things, um, at that point, I think that there is uh, a rational basis to the whole system. And, you know, I, I mostly come, I, astronomy was one of my uh, fields of study in college, along with geology and mathematics. So I have a little bit of background in this, and I've always maintained an interest in, in astronomy more so than astrology. I've, at one point, you know, learned in my life, learned how to erect a natal chart. But, um, you know, I don't do that. I mostly am interested in astronomical cycles, which, of course, I think has, has a great deal of relevance to the study of astrology. Right. But... Um, I definitely think that there is a correlation between the terrestrial realm and the celestial realm. And what I'm very interested in is putting that on a, um, a coherent basis, like actually looking at phenomena through time, say in a geological sense, correlating that with phenomena, phenomena in an astronomical sense. So one of the things that we've inherited from the, from the ancients is this cyclical model of, of temporal change. And it's based primarily on this, the, the idea of the great year, the idea that there is a, um, that there is a, a much larger um, cycle which relates to our more uh, discernible cycles such as the diurnal or daily cycle of the rotation of the Earth on its axis, the annual cycle of the Earth's revolution about the sun. <clears throat> In the ancient concepts, they had this idea of the great year, that there was this much larger cycle, which sort of stood to these smaller cycles in some kind of a harmonic relationship. And from what I've been able to learn, uh, it seems most likely that the basis for this great year was the processional cycle, which is the shifting around of the Earth on its axis over a period of approximately 26,000 years. And it was, there's actually a, a, a number that recurs uh, over and over again in the ancient canon of, of numerical cosmology, which is the number 25,920. 
and it has a has a, a geometrical derivation in that it it's the number you get if you if you nest four dodecahedrons within each other. Mm. But it's also very, very close to being the the number of solar years in a precessional cycle. Interesting. And yes. And so the great year was divided up just like our annual year. So I mean everybody's I think, you know, in the new age and so forth has heard of the you know, the age of Aquarius. Right. The age of Pisces. What does that actually mean? <laughs> like when you hear when you hear that the age of Pisces or the age of Aquarius, what does that mean to you, Greg? <laughs> well, I guess it doesn't mean a whole lot just yet. I know it has to do with our galactic positioning, but I haven't really unlocked a deeper meaning from it. So I guess until then, it's all kind of arbitrary. Uh huh. And you know, remember there was a famous song, right? Yeah, I remember that. And maybe for the listeners, could you sing a few bars of it just to kind of get everybody in the mood? Absolutely. Um, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. That's the one. That's the one I'm talking about. <laughs> now, I don't know. I'm not sure how rigorous the astronomy is in, in that song. But, you know, going back to, you know, that that was like the number one hit. I think it was in 1968 for a while. It was, I think, from the rock musical Hair. But that, you know, it, it kind of shows that there, it's become a cultural cliche and kind of a new age cliche. But there, but there actually is a basis to it, and and that is this, um, you know, that the Earth's axis is not perpendicular to its orbital plane; it's tilted twenty three and a half degrees out of perpendicular. And so, right now, if you if you go outside at night, and let's say you were to stand, let's say you were suddenly transported, Greg, to the North Pole, and you look straight over your head to the zenith. The, the, you measure 90 degrees from the horizon in every direction, and you're looking straight over your head. That's the zenith. Well, if you, if you did that right now, there would be a star uh, very, very close to that exact point, and that's Polaris, the North Star. Everybody's heard of the North Star, right? Right. Polaris, you've heard of the North Star. If you go outside and you, at night and you stand there and you face north, you will see the, the North Star, it's, its elevation off the horizon is going to be a function of your latitude. The, the more norther, northerly your latitude, the, the higher off the horizon that'll be until, like we were just describing, if you were standing at the North Pole, it would be directly overhead. If you were standing at the equator, the North Star would be on the horizon. But the point is that if you were to go out 13,000 years from now, half a processional cycle through, then Polaris will not be the North Star anymore. The star Vega will be the North Star. And there's actually 47 degrees uh, di distance, arc distance measured between Polaris and Vega. Because if you think about it, 47 degrees is double 23 and a half, which is the angular tilt of the Earth. Well, what is happening is that the, the axis of the Earth is, is slowly spinning around very much like the axis of a top. And it, and it completes that cycle in somewhat around 26,000 years, or according to the sacred number, 25,920 years, which translates into 50 arc seconds per year. Now, to give you some kind of a handle to understand what that relates to, mm -hmm. if you go out and you look at the full moon in the sky, the, the distance across the diameter of the full moon is about a half a degree. 
Well, so let's say that you're out in the middle of the ocean. It's perfectly calm, flat ocean. So that if you stand and face one horizon, it would be 90 degrees to the zenith overhead and another 90 degrees to the opposite horizon for a total of 180 degrees. Well, that means that if you were to take the lunar disk and imagine it as, as like beads on a string, and you were able to then stretch that, that string of beads from one horizon arcing over through the zenith to the other one, since each lunar disk is going to be a half a degree, that's going to be two lunar disks tangent to each other for every one degree, or 360 to reach from horizon to horizon, or 720 to completely encircle the Earth. So here, think about this. The, the, the lunar diameter is a half a degree. Okay, now a half a degree is going to be one degree is going to be 60 minutes of arc, okay. right? Because you have a relationship that's very much, in, in when you're talking about the measure of space in terms of circular relationships, we find this correlation between the measure of space and the measure of time, right? Because we all know that one hour consists of 60 minutes, correct? Right. And every minute is subdivided into 60 seconds. And the origin of that is that we say that an hour is, is divided into 60 minute parts. So that word minute is where we get the word minute. Hmm. And then we take the minute and we divide it into a second order of minuteness, and therefore we call them seconds. So there are 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an, in an hour, and 24 hours in a day. In the measurement of a circle, there are 60 minutes of arc in a degree and 60 seconds of arc per minute. Well, the processional motion works out to be 50 arc seconds per year. So what that translates into is that every 72 years, the processional motion of the Earth's axis has moved one degree. Now, that has several effects. One, the, the, the one we, I started with the description here was that the polar axis of the Earth is moving so that what is now the pole star will not be the pole star in 13,000 years. It'll be a star 47 degrees away, which is double 23 and a half, and that is the star Vega. But on the other hand, the, ax, the, the intersection of the plane of the ecliptic, which is the Earth's orbital plane, and the celestial equator, which is Earth's equator projected into space, gives us the equinoctial line. So that this equinoctial line is now pointing between roughly the constellation of Leo on one end and the constellation of not quite Aquarius. It actually is going to be three or four hundred years before this equinoctial line is actually passing through the constellation of Aquarius. So it's not really the quote-unquote age of Aquarius yet. But hmm. the idea here is that each one of these cycles, the vernal equinox, which stands at one end of this equinoctial line, successively transits or passes through each of the 12 signs of the zodiac. And so for the last roughly 2,000 years, the vernal equinox has been passing through the constellation of the fishes, or Pisces. In the 2,000 years preceding that, it was the constellation of Aries. In the 2,000 years preceding that, it was the constellation of Taurus. Over the next 2,000 
roughly 2,200 years, the vernal equinox will be passing through the constellation of Aquarius. So what that in effect means is that uh, if you were to go out uh, and stand and face the eastern horizon on the morning of spring equinox, and right now what would happen is that as the sun would rise, just after the sunrise, the constellation of Aquarius will rise. And then over the next 2,000 years, the spring, the morning spring sunrise will cor correspond to the rising of the constellation of Aquarius. And then 2,000 years after that, it'll be the constellation of Capricorn. And so it goes through each of these uh, 12 constellations in turn and makes a complete cycle every 26,000 years. This is just, this is straightforward astronomy, right? This is not necessarily anything new age about this or even astrological. It's just an astronomical phenomena that, that is, you know, exhaustively documented and, and demonstrated over and over again. However, the ancients did believe that this wheel of the zodiac and this, this great wheel that was divided into these 12 sectors was in effect a kind of a cosmic clock. And what they believed was is that this cosmic clock provided a, a, the tempo. It, it, it showed us when we could expect things to happen. Because you've got to understand that in the ancient model of time was cyclical and catastrophic. It was not linear like our modern times. It was, you could actually visualize it as, as a spiral, which, right, okay, and, and as it spirals around, it repeats itself, but never uh, an exact replication of the preceding. Just like, for example, we're moving into winter now. Now, this winter we know we, is, is predictable that, yeah, it's highly likely it's going to be much, it's going to be colder this winter than it was in July, mm -hmm. right? But on any given day, we don't know whether it's going to be warmer than normal colder than normal, whether it's going to be raining, snowing, whatever. The details of it are not predictable, but the large-scale phenomena is. And we certainly know enough to say, well, okay, shortly after uh, fall equinox, the weather's going to turn. Um, you know, spring equinox, solstices. We have these four marker points within the cycle of the year the two solstices and the two equinoxes. And we know that the two equinoxes are when the day and the night are of equal length. Okay, now what's interesting about that, in, in terms of our earlier discussion about sacred numbers, is that if you actually look at the, the time, the length of a solar day is 24 hours, right? In fact, we've based our measurement of time in terms of the day on the relationship between the Earth and the Sun. So we've taken this, this length of time that if we were to mark the position of the sun in the sky at one moment and then come back 24 hours later or, or come back one daily cycle later and get the exact same position of the sun, that would be the 24-hour day. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, think about this. 24 hours, 60 minutes per hour means that there's 1,440 minutes in a day. And given that there are 60 seconds per minute, it means that there's 40, that there are 86,000 400 seconds per day, right? Now, mm -hmm. if you go out on the exact moment of one of the two equinoxes, the equinox is defined as the moment at which 
uh, which day and night are exactly the same length. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So we're saying now that the light and dark are perfectly balanced, perfectly poised at that moment of the equinox. Well, in terms of measuring in seconds, what that means is that at the moment of equinox, there are 43,200 seconds of light, 43,200 seconds of dark. <laughs> Boom, or, or, there it is. There it is, right there. <laughs> yes. So we have these four points. We have the, the two equinoxes and the two solstices. We've got the winter solstice coming up this month, which is the shortest day of the year. Summer solstice is the longest day of the year. So these are transition points, you know, where the balance of the, of the forces of nature shifts. And, and we find these, these temporal relationships, these cyclical relationships embedded into the sacred architecture of old so that, that it wasn't enough to just incorporate the proportions of sacred geometry. It was also necessary to orient the structures, the sacred structures in such a way that they could that they could illuminate these particular relationships when the day was the, at the longest, when the day was at its shortest, when the day and the night cycle were of exact equal length. And these were then incorporated into the design of the temple so that the layout of the sacred structures, whether it was, whether it was a single building or even a complex of buildings, was then oriented around these key moments in time when events would happen. And it wasn't just the solstices and equinoxes, it was also uh, the rising points, for example, of uh, specific stars that were considered to be important, such as Sirius or the Pleiades or several others. But when we get into this idea of the great year, we're talking about a 26,000 year cycle, and we find many ways that that this cycle was symbolized in ancient traditions. And usually it was symbolized um, in traditions about the, uh, the the ages of the world. So, you know, in, in Greek, ancient Greece, you had the four ages of the world, right? Mm-hmm. The Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. In the Yugas, uh, from the ancient Vedic tradition, you had the four ages represented by the Yugas. Um, you know, the... the um, The Mayans had their concept of four ages of the world. The Hopis had their uh, concept of the four ages of the world that preceded the one we're in now, which is actually they think of as the fifth age. But there are many, many examples of this. In the Christian tradition, we find that actually embedded in the, the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which stand for the four uh, fixed signs of the zodiac, um, which would be Taurus, uh, which is the sign of spring, Leo, the sign of summer, Scorpio, the sign of autumn, and uh, Aquarius, the sign of winter. Hmm. And if you go, if you ever travel around Europe and you go to any of the Gothic cathedrals, you will often see, uh, for example, there's a, a, a very uh, prominent example at Chartres Cathedral at the Portal of Judgment which is on the, the western entrance to the cathedral. As you go in there, there's a picture, or there's a carving, uh, a bas-relief carving of Christ in majesty, and he's seated inside of a vesica, which is the fundamental shape uh, from which the whole edifice of sacred geometry emerges, which is interesting that he's shown seated inside the vesica piscis. But then he's surrounded by the four creatures which are each associated with these four fixed signs of the zodiac. So you see that there's a bull, a lion, an eagle, and a man. Well, the bull is is, is obviously Taurus. Right. The, the springs, 
Leo is is the lion. Um, the eagle is based upon the um, constellation of Aquila, which is the constellation of the eagle, which rises in the late summer at the same time as the constellation of Scorpio. So it, it actually marks that same moment in time in the hmm. cycle. And then usually you have a picture of an angel, and that angel represents the, the figure of Aquarius, the water bearer, which is the, the human figure. And so there's a way of encoding these four stations within the, the annual cycle, which correspond to the two equinoxes and the two solstices. Well, it also represents the four quadrants of the great year. So just as there is in our annual year, four seasons and 12 months, in the great year, there were four seasons and 12 months. As I've just been talking about, the 12 months are the are the the 2,160 year on average time that the vernal equinox spends in each of the zodiacal signs in turn. And each of those is considered to correlate with, with one of the 12 hours on the clock that measures one half of a solar day. And so they saw that there were these, these uh, patterns of correlation between different scales of phenomena, which brings us to the, to the principle that I always teach is, is one of the basic principles of sacred geometry, which is scale invariance. And you met, er, earlier, I think, mentioned something about fractals. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. Well, here, that's the same concept. The idea right. that, that as you begin to dissect a, a pattern or a composition, no matter what degree you look at, you're seeing the same geometrical relationships. And so this kind of fractal uh, model of, the, of reality, this fractal model of creation, was very much at the basis of these ancient concepts of sacred geometry. And so we see a correlation. We can look at these patterns of correlation between, for example, the day, which is the rotation of the Earth on its axis, the year, which is the revolution of the Earth around the sun, and the great year, which is this cycle of the Earth, um, the Earth's axis swinging around, causing the equinoctial line to successively transit through each of the 12 signs of the zodiac in turn. And the ancients believed, according to their uh, interpretation of this, there were points within these cycles where things essentially would happen. Mm -hmm. um, that it wasn't just a smooth continuum, but that there were stations within this cycle where, where using modern terminology, we might refer to them as points of discontinuity or points of nonlinearity, where the normal pace of change gets accelerated orders of magnitude above the normal for a short period of time. And when things settle out and get back to normal, um, the whole balance of, of nature, the balance of the world has been altered. And so this, this brings it to a whole other level of, of, of relevance to our own time. Is because, for example, I don't know if you know some of the work of uh, some of the recent work showing that there was enormous climate changes and environmental changes at the end of the last ice age. Um, this is a big part of what Graham Hancock's work is about. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. And, you know, Graham has, has for years been building a case for what he calls a mother civilization, a civilization that existed in prehistory, who's, who, you know, of which a lot of the evidence has been lost. Right. And, He's been savaged by a lot of critics who have basically claimed, well, 
you know, you don't, you can't present any hard evidence. Well, actually, the hard evidence is now emerging in the form of these archaeological sites like um, Gobekli Tepe and several others that appear now to be at least twelve or thirteen thousand years old. Uh, the Sphinx itself in Egypt, which is probably at least that old as well. Um, but what what Graham has been doing, and a lot of other researchers who are basically considered fringe researchers by by the establishment, have been building a very powerful circumstantial case for right. there having been a a much deeper history um, that has that has been lost. Well. My research basically provides, I think, one of the, the, the answer to the question of why it became lost. And, and this, to me, it's like, you know, the DVD that, we're, that we have produced. It's called Cosmic Patterns and Cycles of Catastrophe. And I think that kind of sums up the whole idea here is that in the ancient model of time, there were periodic catastrophes. And it was very much about understanding when those catastrophes were going to happen, so that one could take steps to either ameliorate the, ameliorate the catastrophe or to, um, you know, put oneself in a position that maximized your probabilities of coming through the catastrophe unscathed. Yeah, so that, that is a study that I think is just so interesting. And something that I, I'd like to try to get a handle on, maybe you can give us some type of chronology of, uh, but these mystery schools throughout the ages that have tried to preserve this sacred geometry, the golden ratios, these uh, alignments in the sky. Can you give us some idea of how, have you ever tried to trace these keepers of the knowledge down through the ages amongst the various rises and falls of civilization and these sudden earth changes and things that come up? Oh yes, absolutely. And I think that's what you're talking about. There is a very critical part of the whole, um, understanding this whole alternate history. And it, what it, you know, that was, that was actually one of my motives for going into um, Freemason in the first place. <laughs> nice. because, because I was very much interested in, in tracing this, the pathway of this knowledge through history. And, and a metaphor that I use is um, it's like a river that it's like a subterranean river. And where most of the time it's flowing underground and you're unaware of it, but from time to time it emerges, it breaks through the surface and flows over ground visibly for a while before it, you know, finds uh, an aperture to go back into, into its, its subterranean channels. Mm -hmm. And I think if we look at history, we, we see that there were numerous times when this, the, the ancient system of knowledge emerged for a while you know, like, for example, one of the most prominent of these was during this period um, from about the mid-1100s to the late 1200s A.D. Uh, that saw the rise of the, the Gothic cathedrals, the building of the, the great Gothic cathedrals. And because there was, during this period of time, there were so many interesting things that happened. Um, it's during this time that we see the rise of Catharism, which was, uh, sort of a restoration of the ancient lost Christianity um, that was suppressed in the first two centuries A.D. Um, once Christianity became subverted and became uh, exploited to, uh, you know, basically support an authoritarian establishment, the original Christianity of the first two centuries was essentially driven underground. Um, and then we see that reemerging in the form of Catharism, 
during the, the, the 12th and 13th centuries. At the same time, we see the emergence of the, the, the Grail literature, um, the great cycles of the Grail that were, were published um, by Chrétien de Troyes, Robert Deberon, Wolfram von Eschenbach, and other anonymous authors during the same roughly one century period. It was also the time at which we saw the rise of the, the Templar Knights um, and their, their journeys uh, linking east and west and setting up this, this transfer of knowledge. It was when we first see the schools of Sufism and Kabbalism uh, showing up in Spain and in the Middle East. It was a time of the troubadours who were basically messengers carrying the sacred knowledge around um, from, from, you know, uh, around European civilization. It was when we first see the emergence of, of the symbolism of the tarot. So it goes on and on. There was, so there was a period of about a hundred years there where, you know, we see this incredible proliferation of these ideas and symbolism and so on. And this I always look at as one of the more recent times in history when the underground stream of, of sacred knowledge emerged into the world and really completely altered the trajectory of, of history by doing so. And then it went underground again. You know, It reemerged again somewhat, not in the most salient fashion as it did in the Middle Ages, but, but um, you know, in Renaissance times with the scientific enlightenment because many of the, the, um, the founders of the, you know, the scientific enlightenment were were mystics and metaphysicians and, and spiritually oriented individuals, whether it was Newton or Kepler or, or Tycho Brahe or, or all of these guys, they had a, a very uh, spiritual orientation. And we see it in, you know, the, this, the rise of the schools of alchemy between the, the, the 16th and 17th century. We see it in the emergence of, of Freemasonry uh, in uh, the early 1700s which was essentially just, you know, not the beginning of Freemasonry, it was just Freemasonry emerging into, into visible uh, manifestation in the world. Um, and then, uh, you know, we see that a lot of the founding fathers of, the, of America were immersed in a lot of these traditions, um, you know, because of the fact that they were uh, Freemasons. And then we essentially kind of see what the rise of scientific uh, enlightenment, what we see is kind of an emphasis on the the external world with a de-emphasis on the, the, the internal spiritual realm, and we kind of become very materialistically oriented by the turn of the 20th century. And we also see that, you know, from the, from the, uh, the uh, apotheosis of the whole Gothic movement in the 12th century, when the whole of European society was oriented around creating these magnificent sacred edifices that embodied the ancient principles, you know, geometry and, and astronomy and, and geodesy and so on, what we see is a gradual decline of, of that uh, manifestation through the centuries to where it basically disappears at the dawn of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And then what we've seen through the 20th century is a gradually, a gradual but ever accelerating revival it really went through a, a major uh, acceleration during the 1960s with the introduction, reintroduction of a lot of these concepts and principles. I mean, that's when I began my studies. That's when Graham began his studies. So many of these, um, you know, scholars of, of, these, uh, of these systems and these 
uh, you know, um, ancient traditions and so on actually got their starts in the 60s and 70s. And now 30 and 40 years later, that research is starting to bear fruit. And it's, and it's going to trigger, I, I believe, a whole paradigm shift in the way we, we look at the world we inhabit. And we're going to understand that, you know, history didn't really begin 5,000 years ago in Sumeria. It probably, it began tens of thousands of years ago. And what we are seeing and interpreting as the beginning of history was actually the rebooting of history. Mm-hmm. And um, realizing that, that the reality is, is that there's, there is a, a lost history of this world. There's a lost history, a deep history of the human species on Earth. Because, you know, our, our species goes back most likely several hundred thousand years minimum. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, you're probably aware of the fact that human skeletons are, are being, modern human skeletons are constantly being found, and, and they're getting older and older. So we're, there have been skeletons now that have dated to 150 to 180,000 years old. And these are modern humans, you know. So it's, it's telling us we've been on this planet for a long time, and what have we been doing all this time? Why, did, why is it that not until 5,000 years ago, roughly, did, did we actually start having a record of what people were doing? Well, I think, and here, here's the answer to many of uh, Graham's critics, is that what we now know is that there have been multiple catastrophes, global catastrophes, catastrophes of unimaginable power that have recurred episodically throughout the, the hundred to 200,000 years that we humans have been here. And the last great global catastrophe um, happened, you know, between 11 and 13,000 years ago when the planet shifted gears out of the depths of, of the Ice Age into this modern Holocene warmth, as we call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a, a fascinating breakdown. And I'm super interested in that because, you know, being con- kind of conspiratorial minded, not to make it too simplistic, but I see there's some groups of people throughout history that have tried to preserve this knowledge and, you know, to use a cliche phrase, enlighten man. And then there's other groups that try to keep this knowledge outside of the mainstream. And I think your river analogy is is really great. Yeah, it's, sometimes it's right up on the surface, and then sometimes it's way underground, and there's huge blank spots in history where you're like, where was that knowledge? Yeah. Well, what I'm trying to do is to run to, to go around and poke as many holes as I can in the overlying bedrock <laughs> to allow the water to come bubbling forth. Yeah, well said, man. Thank you. Yeah, Randall, this has been fascinating. We could do it all day, but I guess we got to wrap it up. I mean, I can't thank you enough for your dedication. I know it's all fun and games doing podcasts on this subject, but you've spent decades doing the work to be able to speak at length on these things, and I really admire that. That's very noble. Before we go, do you want to tell the people about your website, the classes, and uh, I think you have an upcoming <laughs> seminar on the way too, right? Uh, yeah, there are some things coming up. We're going to do a a, um, a webinar I believe it's on January 4th, Sunday, um, The Quest for the Cosmic Grail, Recovering the Lost History of the World in Two Sessions. If people go to the um, Sacred Geometry International website, just sacredgeometryinternational.com or, you know, put your, just Google Sacred Geometry International and and you'll get the hit. Um, You can go there and all the information will be there. And we're about to relaunch our sacred geometry, online sacred geometry classes, which have been on hold for three months um, just because the nature of, of things, um, <laughs> you know, how things go. So right. um, 
we're halfway through the second level and we're going to uh, carry through that second level. And I'm anxious to get into that because we're really now starting to get into the, the to me, the, the meat of the whole subject. Um, so yeah, there are online classes and there's a lot of articles up there that people can read. Um, I've got a whole series introducing the, uh, the Grail mythology, which I think is really interesting and really potent stuff. Um, there are introductory articles into in sacred geometry um, and uh, global change, and there's always going to be new stuff added. So, yeah, I would say that would be the start. Just go to Sacred Geometry International, you know, join our Facebook group. Um, yeah. The, the class looks great. I'm, I'm super psyched. I'm going to probably take it myself here pretty soon. I also did want to ask you, this kind of jogged my memory, do you have any plans to take this out into the field with people, maybe to do some field trips to some of these either ancient sites or the look to look at the geological evidence that we talked about earlier. Oh yeah. I've been, I've been doing these trips. Uh, I started, I think with the first guided tour in 19, I was a 96 or 97. And I've done about two dozen of them since. Um, yes. And, and I try to put it together, a mix of geological sites, archeological sites. Um, you know, we've done, uh, in the last, mostly I focused on North America, but you know I did uh, I did a trip to um, the Yucatan to explore Mayan architecture and and um, the geology of the Yucatan and how the two are integrated. I did a trip to Egypt uh, in two thousand was it ten yeah two thousand ten the end of two thousand basically just a couple of weeks before the revolution actually. Um, but yeah, there's um, things in the works. We're possibly looking at a trip to the Azores. Um, and then, of course, more things coming up um, in North America. Uh, because, you know, North America was essentially the epicenter of the last great global catastrophe. And there's also considerable evidence of, of lost cultures in North America. So I've done repeated trips to... Uh, explore the the monumental earthworks of you know Ohio and Mississippi and so on. I've done repeated trips to the Southwest to explore the Chacoan culture, the Anasazi. Um, you know, I've done repeated trips to the Pacific Northwest. Like this trip that I did with Graham was essentially a repeat of a trip I've done seven or eight times, taking uh, small groups of people out, spending anywhere from one to two weeks. Uh, traversing these landscapes and teaching them how to read, um, basically how to read and decipher these landscapes of catastrophe. And then I try to always uh, integrate uh, other things too, like on this trip with Graham Hancock, uh, we visited Hot Springs, South Dakota, which was a, uh, a, a woolly and Colombian mammoth kill site hmm. where, where, where there was a mass mortality event. Um, so we could see the skeletal remains of all of these entombed great mammoths. Um, you know, I visited the big, what's called Big Bone Lick in Kentucky, where uh, early in American history, it was um, one of the unique paleontological finds where, again, there was apparently a herd of mastodons that were um, wiped out in a catastrophe. And uh, Thomas Jefferson, a lot of his collection that he had in the White House were were um, had been excavated from 
this particular location in Kentucky. Hmm. So we look at a combination of that. I like looking at the archaeology. So, you know, we've done trips to Chaco Canyon multiple times and looking at the Chaco and culture around the Southwest, how that relates to the um, to the Hopewellian and Mississippian cultures of the Eastern Woodlands and what the potential links were between them um, and between those cultures and the Mayan culture in Central America. I've done trips into Canada to look at evidence for the great ice sheets and, and you know, try to visit uh, Indian reservations to talk to them about what their lore and legends would teach us. Um, so, yeah, I try to mix up some geology, some paleontology, some archaeology. Um, also, you know, it's I try to, like I quite frequently would try to organize trips uh, like August, for example, during the peak of the Perseid meteor shower, mm. so that we might be out in a high desert country during the peak of the Perseids, and we could spend an evening um, watching a spectacular meteor shower. Oh, so, cool. yeah, those, I don't have anything specific at this time scheduled, but I'm sure that that, that will come around again. So, Very you know, awesome. as, as soon as something like that is in the works, it, it'll be announced on the website. Nice. Yeah, that's so cool because I've wanted to check out some of these strange sites or even take a big international trip, but I always keep in mind the guide I might have, you know, is probably not clued into the kind of things that I want to, I want to look at, you know, they're going to be more in the uh, traditional, you know, mainstream view. And so the fact that you're doing that, that's pretty awesome. And hopefully one day I'll join you. Well, I hope so, Greg, because, you know, we always need somebody to carry backpacks. All right. Yeah, I could, I could use a workout. Yeah. How old are you, Greg? I'm 29. Okay. All right. That's, <laughs> see, on all of these trips, I always like to have what I used to be was a you know physically fit young fella that could basically almost climb anything. And but you know, in geological, uh, when you're doing photographs of geological formations, you always have to have something in there for scale. Otherwise, people don't really know what you're looking at because mm-hmm. this is that principle we talked about earlier: scale and variance. Right. So. You know, you've got some big boulder or something sitting up on the side of a hill, and somebody needs to be in the picture. Otherwise, people don't know, how big is that boulder, you know? So I always need somebody to say, hey, Greg, would you take that run a quarter mile up the hill and stand next to that rock so we can take your picture? (laughs) Deal, man. I'll be that guy. (laughs) You'll be that guy. Okay, and we're going to prepare a special yellow suit for you um, with with, with markings on it for scale. (laughs) Perfect. Okay, how tall are you, Greg? I'm 6'1". Perfect. Yep, Perfect. I'm at that ratio. Yeah, you are. That's, that's <laughs> how tall I am, 6'1". Nice. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I can't wait. Hopefully that will manifest in time. But uh, this has been excellent, man. I really had a great time. Learned a lot. I think the people did as well. Uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure, my friend. Take care of yourself out there. Thank you, Greg, and I'm sure we'll be doing this again. For sure. Wow, people. In the immortal words of Tag Team... Whoop, there it is. What a fun show. And this one was a little harder to divide because half is more about sacred geometry and the other half is more about catastrophism and earth changes, so the context shifts around a little bit. But really, they seem like separate subjects, but it's largely the same thing. Because I think about if we had a mass extinction event today, like right now, before I even finish rambling here, let's say a meteor impacts the earth. Well, the elite who probably knew this was going to happen and didn't disclose it to the masses, are probably safely tucked away in their underground bases. And when they emerge after a few good years, this sacred geometry is going to prove very important. 
to have this basket of knowledge of ratios and relationships in our universe, it's the blueprints to rebuild, and it's also so much more. And then not only that, but these nefarious elite who weather the storm and want to come out on the other side being the powerful overlords that they love to be, what a perfect opportunity to start managing the perceptions of history and man's timeline. You could change it all, or say it never existed. Most of it being destroyed by the devastating cataclysm. And yeah, it might take a few hundred years to shake off any of those pesky tribes or little groups of survivors who claim to remember that magical time before the impact of a global civilization that had flying machines and theme parks and a computer in every pocket. It'd take some time, but you'd get rid of all of them. And then you could rebuild the world with the story that you decide for the masses. And then a few hundred or even a few thousand years later, man starts developing technology for digging real deep. And they start finding things like the Dumbo ride from the ancient site of Disneyland. Or someone digs up a petrified Starbucks logo. And the leaders will say, no, see, the mind sees patterns where it wants to. And these are all just natural formations. There was no man on Earth in 2014. We know this. And then you'll have the fringe scientists and radical thinkers of the year 7545 looking at Mount Rushmore and writing books about how it was carved by the ancients out of admiration for their leaders. And just like the face on Mars, the future elite will say, no, don't be ridiculous. The mind sees what it wants to see. These are just natural mountains. And that is when we'll really understand the secular nature of time and the manipulation of ruling elite that keep a tight grip on the keys to knowledge. And I think that's largely how it goes. So if you like the first half, sign up for THC Plus and get the second half of not only this show, but all the awesome shows we do. In the extended show with Randall, we talked more about tracing the sacred geometry through history from one group of secret societies to another, the dumbing down of education, Randall's involvement with the homeschooling movement, how to incorporate this learning into your own kids. So, so important because... For a lot of us, the damage has been done. Let's just tell it like it is. We also talk about true climate change, the cycles and patterns we see our planet follow, and the contrast between that and the global warming propaganda of the UN. And I also gave out a pretty high-end marijuana growing tip in relation to CO2 for any hungry entrepreneurs. We also talked about the Great Ice Age, the Little Ice Age, what they were like, how civilization changed, and how most of the ancient coastline cities are probably underwater today, and that should be the next frontier of discovery for the ancient past. We talked comets and asteroid impacts, something Randall knows a whole hell of a lot about, and it's, it's great stuff. And the price of admission is very reasonable. So, hope to see you on the plus side. Also, be sure to check out Sacred Geometry International, which is Randall's website. You can kill a few good hours there. Amazing stuff. Really well laid out. And that's about it. Another one for the archives. Thanks for listening. Follow your path. Keep your pimp hands strong. And I'll be talking to you next time. Your move, macho man Randy Savage. Your frickin' move. Sympathy and trust abounding No more falsehood or
Hey!